Welcome, everybody, to the seventh edition of Quarantine Market Podcast, where few academics come together in their self-isolating pajamas to talk about the current historical situation. Today, the key word that we're going to be discussing is psychosis, and we have Elliot Lambert to join us. We are taking a perverted view, of course, to psychosis, but that goes without saying. So, Alan, would you mind introducing our guest? Yes, Aliette Lambert works at Exeter University. Uh, She has published some work on uh, the psychotic and market, as well as other research areas related to travel and so forth. And we're very pleased to have her today. So hello, Aliette. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thanks for having me on. Really excited. So to begin with, Aliette, uh, how should we begin to approach the term of psychosis? Well, I think psychosis is it's traversing different areas within the study, I would broadly say the study of the mind. So if we think about psychiatry, psychology, psychoanalysis, and I don't pretend to be any of the three ists, psychiatrists, psychologists, or psychoanalysis, but as a researcher or a scholar of culture, that's sort of the view that I've taken within my own work. However, that being said, I think it's quite important to associate or rather to contextualize the term within its various definitions. I'll start with what I would consider the most broadly applicable term, which is the NHS. Let's go to the the NHS and look at what we see as psychosis. Importantly, within the psychiatric sphere, psychosis is seen as a symptom, and that's quite an important um, differentiation. So uh, the symptoms that are associated with psychosis are hallucination and delusion. With mainstream psychiatric literature, as I'm I'm using the NHS to broadly capture what they're thinking on is on it, is a hallucination defined as where a person hears, sees, and in some case feels, smells, or tastes things that don't exist outside of their mind. But it can feel very real to the person affected by them. A common hallucination that they name is hearing voices. Delusions, on the other hand, are where a person has strong beliefs that aren't shared by others. And a common one that people have is some thinking there's some conspiracy to harm them. And I find that this is quite an interesting definition from a cultural perspective, because in both versions, there's some questioning around reality. So psychosis has to do very definitively And here's where we bring in a bit of Lacanian psychoanalysis, is thinking that there's something having to do with what is real as distinguished from reality. So importantly, someone suffering from psychotic symptoms, feel it feels very real to them. But then some outside person, in this case, let's say a psychiatrist, might argue that that is not within what we might call reality. That's interesting to me. And like I said, I'm not a psychiatrist and I don't work from that perspective necessarily. So I'd like to now move a bit into breaking that this down from a cultural and psychoanalytic perspective, because that's what I'm more familiar with. Psychosis from a psychoanalytic perspective or from a Lacanian psychoanalytic perspective has to do with a lack of integration or a lack of moving into the symbolic order. So if we posit that the infant We'll take this all the way back to the moment of birth. I think birth is something, having recently given birth myself and thinking a lot about attachment theory, which I'll come back to later on in the podcast. 
if we take this from a developmental perspective and we start at the moment of birth, the infant is born, you know, those of you familiar with psychoanalytic theory or, or not even that familiar will know the idea of this infant born a bundle of nerves and into this what Freud would have called a primary narcissistic phase. This primary narcissistic phase would, in a Lacanian perspective, be considered potentially a phase of psychosis. And what that means is it's a total involvement in the real with a capital R. So what, what do I mean by that? Or what am I trying to say with this? In terms of psychosis, we become social beings or we become who we are or who we think or who we feel by integrating ourselves into a symbolic order. So essentially, Lacan argues that the subject is always split. And what he means by that is that the subject is split by language. What he means by that is a subject comes into being, they, the, uh, the baby is born, the baby is a bundle of nerves, and slowly the baby begins to realize that it's separate from the mother. And this is the breaking down of primary narcissism. So then primary narcissism, in a sense, is the complete boundedness between the mother and the baby. The baby also having every single need met, being able to live in this fantasy of complete and utter perfection of the real. Obviously, this begins to break down. And this is where attachment theory comes in, is the breakdown and how the baby becomes integrated into the symbolic. From a Lacanian perspective, this requires a third-party figure who he names as the name of the father. Now, from a feminist perspective, the father is in itself symbolic. It doesn't necessarily have to be a man and a father. Obviously, there are some gendered issues around that. Also, obviously, around seeing the symbolic as a patriarchal tr tradition. But this father, if you think about it as the third-party figure who breaks the bond between the mother and the infant and who shows the infant, so the father can also be represented by language, and brings the infant from this bundle of nerves, from this bond with the mother, into quote-unquote reality. So it moves the infant away from quote-unquote the real into reality. Now, the real persists. The real we can never, ever escape. So it's that feeling, that sense that there's always something missing. And I don't want to use the word lack here for a purpose because I'm not necessarily right now talking about desire. That moves us forward into a different territory. I think in terms of psychosis, it's important to keep the focus on this distinction versus real and reality. And there is a definition, um, just to keep it a bit more simple, let's say, that Teresa Brennan, who is a Lacanian, a feminist Lacanian, she describes this idea of the symbolic as being able to distinguish the self from others, to place others in relation both to others and to the self. So there's a sense of distinguishing. So when Lacan talks about split subject, what he means is it's the subject split from the capital R real and moved into this world of the symbolic and into this world of language. And so it gives if if you if this happens in a non-pathological way, let's say, I don't know if that's the right term to use, I don't want to necessarily say normal, there's a lot of different ways that this could happen, but it basically, the good enough subject has, to use a term that popular psychology is using quite a lot, uh, it places others in relation to the self, or rather places the self in relation to others. It gives the, the subject, the subject would then have a sense of their relation to the world, gives them the, the ability to speak and to be understood by others. 
And importantly, and I'll come back to this a little later on as well, it institutes the subject in time and space in a historical moment and in a geographical place, let's say. And I'd like to add to that, that it institutes the subject into a body. So there's very much an embodied sense of being, a connection between the mind, the body, the emotions and the body. That's quite important as well. So if we take the reverse of that definition to think about psychosis, we would say the self is unable to distinguish itself from others. It's unable to place others in relation both to others and the self. There is not a sense of the self in relation to the world. There is not an ability to speak or be understood by others. And there's a lack of coherence, cohesion, boundaries between time and space. So in a sense, when you have a subject who's not psychotic, the subject can say, this is me or it is me. That's how the subject is able to identify itself. But in a case of psychosis, a subject might be able to say, that is I but it cannot say it is me. I really liked R.D. Lang's definition of, and, and there are issues with R.D. Lang, I will point out, because, which I can talk on further on, because he talks about the self as divided to define schizophrenia and psychosis, whereas Lacan talks about the self as split to define what's not psychosis. But to use a phrase that I really liked from Lang, he defines psychosis as an I without a me. So in this case, the other becomes the same as me. And in fact, many psychoanalysts would define psychosis as Freud's primary process. So that is that process that I talked on earlier about the infant coming into being through this phase of primary narcissism. So it's sort of a return to that in a sense. To add to these distinctions a little bit, uh, it would seem to me at least that very often, if you look at more clinical or medical psychology, they would seem to define psychosis as a pathology. There's something wrong with you. You're abnormal. You're not productive. You can perform uh, normal societal functions. But the psychoanalytic, or then you could daringly go into the schizoanalytic from Deleuze and Guattari, they would see psychosis quite differently as something more like a possibility. Yeah, that's interesting what you mentioned that, because I'm not a Deleuzian. But I would say he has commented on the schizoid, schizo subject. I think he defines it as schizoid as the radical deterritorialization and this space for a potential revolutionary subject out of that. And so I do think the distinction between what medical science refers to as pathological, which is psychosis, they do refer to psychosis as a problem, as something that needs to be fixed and medicalized and... Uh, and obviously from a certain ontological and epistemological perspective that does differ from psychoanalysis, that distinction is important. And another distinction that's important, something I thought a lot about when I was reading this stuff and thinking about psychosis in the weeks up to preparing for this talk, is where are the lines for psychosis? So surely we've all been in a situation where we've heard something that wasn't necessarily there, a knock on the door, footsteps above us and maybe some people think they've got a ghost living with them or something like that but oftentimes how can we know what reality is this brings into that that into question as well and the creative possibilities around psychosis from a medicalized perspective are probably foreclosed by a system that views these symptoms if you will as naturally pathological you said that the very reason why Deleuze and Guattari well we don't need to really get into this but the whole point in anti-Oedipus is that 
the normalization of your character is always a sort of despotic act, so thus there becomes new potential in schizophrenia and psychosis and so on. But I'm also reminded uh, about Lacan. Simon Schuster, in his book Trouble with Pleasure, a couple of years back, he recounted this interesting moment where Lacan was asked, hey, Jacques, you have, you have great theories, but we realized that all your theories are about really sick people. So, Jacques, would you have any theory for, for a normal person? And then you can really hear in uh, Lacan's voice that he's pissed off about the question and apparently he answers something like, I have said time and time again, there's three levels of normalcy. It's called neurosis, perversion, and psychosis. And that's what we have. I think, I think that another thing, so, and this has been brought up in my own personal life in terms of uh, having a baby, talking, getting more into that space. I wouldn't say I've done any sort of infant observation, but I've certainly been able to observe many infants. And seeing uh, the mother-baby bond, mother-father-baby bond, because we wouldn't want to leave it just on the mother. That's also, um, I think, overlooking very important roles and also overlooking the interplay between the three, let's say. There's not, there's sometimes more than three, sometimes fewer. But if you look into that space of infant observation, you can start to see not only a lot of pathologies developing at this early phase of attachment, but also the normalization of pathologies. So I think uh, Lacan's observation there. So then it obviously brings, is there, what is normal and is there normal? And these questions, when you begin to look into psychosis, these questions become quite important, I think, in the study. So of really starting to say, where do we draw a line between pathological symptoms and what why are we not nurturing some sort of potentials or how do we quote-unquote deal with these symptoms and I've purely been speaking at the moment on a um, individual level I must say informed by social theory but then we can also extrapolate this onto a social socio-cultural level which is is what I've done in my work. Before we get to that Aliyad, I'd like to ask you about the cultural representations of the psychopath. Um, I'm thinking of all those movies in the 80s and 90s where the psychopath is presented as somebody who's very, very dangerous. Uh, aggression is emphasized. That paranoia, confusion uh, gives way to some sort of inability to have any comprehension of their own ethics. Is, is that way of thinking useful? Well, I wonder, I mean, some of the reading that I've done around psychosis... Um, I think psychosis is it's a term bound up with a lot of different terms. We've already mentioned schizo in the place of psychosis, narcissism and pathological narcissism and traumatic narcissism and a host of other words for narcissism also are within that sphere. And then the word psychopath and the idea of psychopathy as something and I, you just mentioned it, Alan, lacking that moral, those moral boundaries. And what I've spoken about so far, the question of morals hasn't arisen. And there ha isn't a sense in the literature that I've read anyway, whereby someone with psychotic symptoms or someone with psychosis don't have morals. Now you would ask, what are morals? Morals are, are always occurring in relation to some version or form of reality. The reality that I've discussed so far through Teresa Brennan's work is relational. You could, you could call it socially constructed. Um, that needs to be deconstructed a bit. But it's relational in that when a child is born, and Lacan speaks of this as well, 
the child is always born into a situation and into the desires of the mother and the father. There are various desires for wanting the child or not, or various things. So the child is born into a reality. Again, that's separate from this idea of real capital R. But in that reality, there's a moral structure. And I think a psychopath, and I'm thinking of, I can't remember the guy's name. Oh, Christian Bale was the actor, wasn't he? American Psycho. Psycho, that's what I'm thinking of. I mean, that's probably the most obvious um, cliche example. But that lack of moral structure or that lack of understand, let's call it empathy almost, rather than morals, that lack of understanding the experience of another. Well, that aspect, so if you talk about the empathetic aspect, I would say that that's sort of intrinsic to the definition, because if you can't identify the difference between others and yourself, then you can't necessarily put yourself into the other's perspective. Or if you do, then that necessarily renders you psychotic because you've overemphasized with the other. So there's that line. But in terms of this psychopath and in terms of the lack of moral compass, I think that's, um, I would maybe argue that that's a natural, one of the worst case scenarios with this. But I would almost say that that's more on this pathological narcissistic phase of grandiosity, entitlement, and physically, in some cases, you know, with murder, acts of murder, physically needing to kill the other in order to be the self. So to have to kill off symbolically somebody else's subjectivity in order to, to maintain your own. And I think we see a lot of that in psychopath in movies, anyway, of psychopaths. For me, the character of Christian Bale in the movie is not, at least in any way, we tend to talk about a psycho. He is not in psychosis. He acts quite rationally within the context. He plans the murders, he has always gear and equipment for those. He doesn't act irrationally, he acts perfectly rationally within this fantasy world that's happening there. So I would argue that that movie is actually more about the cultural psychosis. It talks about how people have gone missing and objects have, objects of consumption have replaced the people. If you remember the famous scene of the movie with the business cards or when they talk about Rolexes. So the people actually are very shallow, they never work, they never seem to do anything. They are just these conveyors of objects. So I would argue that that movie is about being in a psychosis on a cultural level, that America has been overrun by consumer culture, so there is no meaning for people anywhere left. And that's the kind of a broader or a more meta level of psychosis I think the movie is addressing. Yeah, I'm interested in the idea of uh, psychosis and becoming slave to desire and a very kind of id-based desire. Um, and how this might take us into this issue of instant gratification and selfishness, which is one of the tropes of critiquing consumer culture. Do you think that we should think of the sort of proto-atomized, uh, self-absorbed consumer as, a, as, ex- as an experience of uh, psychosis? Yeah, I do. Uh, I've argued that, and I do think so. And and so this gets us, and Joel, Joel, I think you've moved us in a good direction here, actually, to talk about that movie more as a, again, if you take the character, then we can see more of a pathological narcissist, and, and that rational, those rational steps are indeed indicative of that, but then the movie itself as a cultural psychosis. And so moving in that direction a bit, what occurs here is a sense that the consumer... So it's a sense of this symbolic unboundedness. And the word bounded is quite important when we think about psychosis as well, because or bounded or boundary or things moving from, you know, plays off of that word, because essentially 
speaking, you'd think of psychosis as a loss of boundary between all these things I spoke about before, the real and reality, the sense of other and self and so forth. So what Dufour is arguing, and what I was arguing with my study as well, is that cultural psychosis is providing a main form of subjectivity of psychosis by replacing symbolic anchors with consumer culture, with commodity, with brands, and so forth. And that by the nature of capital, from a Marxist perspective, these things are moving. So the end goal of capital is to fill every space and to fill all of time as quickly as possible. And in a sense, that is psychotic because how can the subject, and I'm speaking here on a cultural level, not necessarily on an individual level, how can the subject become itself into a language that's always changing, always shifting? And this is where Teresa Brennan, see, she calls it the ego's era. There are various terms for it, but this is where she sees this replacement of time, of space over time. So space becomes starts to replace time. And what she means by time is this sort of historical groundedness. And DeForest arguing this, I think she's saying that Walter Benjamin was arguing this as well. So this isn't, and Jameson as well, Frederick Jameson, there's this real sense of perpetual present. And that's essentially what the id is. And I'm saying essentially, so not necessarily, but essentially what the id is or the real. It's always, so the infant is experiencing every moment in the present. And it's that infantilization of the subject in this, you might want to call it late modern, post-postmodern, neoliberal, post-neoliberal, whatever you want to call it, this society dominated by consumer capitalism. And that's exactly what consumer capitalism seeks to do. It seeks to exploit this issue with the superego, ego and id, and the fact that the subject and here's where you'd get into questions about neurotic and psychotic, um, where the subject can no longer institute itself into a historical, it can't see itself. And you spoke obviously about generation on a previous podcast. It can't institute itself into a future or previous generation because it's constantly trying to become itself in the present. And these things, technologies have arisen to help us either to help us deal or to further the issue, such as Instagram or Facebook or whatever you want to say, where the subject's constantly posting, reposting, posting, and it's all in this perpetual present. You also, uh, in your article, you talk about the a critical uh, subject as, as a type of searching for commodities. Could you explain that, please? Basically, what, what the argument is there is that the psychotic being in this perpetual present, not having any symbolic anchors, and therefore what we would say in psych psychoanalytic terms, unable to assume the place of I, which I talked about at the beginning of the talk. So it's that sense of not being able, or rather unable to assume the place of me, not being able to understand the self as the self in relation to others, becomes quite acritical. It was argued prior, so the quote-unquote modern subject from a Freudian perspective was the neurotic. And the neurotic is, whereas the psychotic is completely exposed, the neurotic is completely repressed. And everything is closed away, hidden, and guilt is inherent to the neurotic subject because guilt as in, I owe my subjectivity to a symbolic anchor. So be, be it the nation, the law, di these different symbolic anchors which held. And there, again, I have to mention the patriarchal nature of those symbolic anchors, but the answer to being free from those is certainly not psychosis. The acritical comes in where 
because we're talking about this modern subject as quite critical of those different institutions in the sense of feeling a sense of guilt that they are indebted to these for their very being, but also feeling a sense of critique of these institutions. So there's sort of a, I don't know if I want to call it dialectical, but there's this pattern going on of indebtedness, guilt, and critique, and maybe anger or rage or something like that, and then moving through this, which makes the modern subject also neurotic. In terms of psychosis, this ceases to be because there's a constant living in the quote-unquote id or real or perpetual present. And there's this inability to hook on to any of these symbolic anchors, which gives an inability to critique them. Now that we're using the term neurotic and, uh, and we've been using the uh, term perverted a lot in this podcast too, maybe we should offer quick uh, definitions for those two. So let me offer Zizek's funny quick ones and you can add to those then. So Zizek, of course, just simply says that the neurotic in its bare bones is a rather straightforward situation. It's when you don't know what you want and you don't know what the other wants from you. So you're in this perpetual state of, like you said, uh, repression or uncertainty. You're not, you don't know exactly what you're supposed to do, but you're constantly anxious about not knowing what you're supposed to do from the perspective of others as well. Then the perverted is a sort of an opposite to that, for Zizek at least in his example, and he says that the perverted knows how to fix things. So the perverted wants to create control to kind of replace this neurotic situation, and he or she really knows that these ways that uh, he or she is trying to do is the right way how to fix this. So if you are a philatelist and you collect stamps and all the stamps need to be in perfect order and you're, you obsess over those, that could be perverted. So you're trying to create control into chaos desperately. And then, of course, the psychotic moment is when you lose yourself into the flow of all things. You disappear into the immanent. Is that something that you could accept? Yeah, I could accept that. I think um, also adding to the, I'm not as a, much of an expert on the perverted, I'll leave that to you. Um, but the neurotic tends toward, I would say the neurotic does tend toward what we might say submission and repression to this quote-unquote name of the father of Lacan, whereas um, the psychotic forecloses it by denying it and casting it out. So I think that's an important moment, and I'll come back to it. I talked about it a bit at the beginning, and I'm not sure how clear my thoughts were on this, but about the infant moving from this primary narcissism bundle of nerves, one with the mother, to being assimilated into the symbolic and language, and the name of the father being the primordial signifier, or I don't know how you want to put it, but this main fundamental symbolic anchor. And that moment is, I think, also what separates the psychotic from neurotic, whereas the psychotic does not assimilate whatsoever, the neurotic might over-assimilate and submit and repress this name, resulting in that sort of behavior of a sense of hiding or being and not knowing and being very unaware, whereas the psychotic might be considered over-aware and your perverted might be. I, I like that, actually, that idea of desperately seeking control of, of chaos, some, something in between, perhaps, aware of the chaos, but trying to control it in a neurotic fashion. Would you say that's yeah, I guess uh, the important thing here uh, for those who are not so aware of these concepts uh, is that the pervert, it doesn't in any way connect into uh, sexual perversion necessarily. Just the fact that perversion in this broad sense, you could say that it's all over the place. 
And you can also say, especially if I take a little bit of a Deleuze Guattarian position here, psychosis is all over the place too. Every time you get a shiny new consumption toy and you are kind of in a flow experience, every time you, let's say you go skydiving, you jump off the plane, the first moments in this broad reading of psychosis are psychotic. You lose yourself in the moment. You, you yeah. become so excited that there's nothing else there. There is no me. There's just this pure flow of things. So in this sense, consumption objects and consumption experiences are these momentary mini psychosis episodes that are really enjoyable, which is paradoxical because culturally oriented consumer research has always had an overemphasis on meaning. Well, what, what, what if uh, it's the psychosis moments that are important, not the meaning moments? Well, I think that's accurate. I mean, I'm just looking at a quote here from Jameson, um, who describes schizophrenic experience as an experience of isolated, disconnected, discontinuous material signifiers, which fail to link up into a coherent sequence. And I'd argue that that's certainly the case for someone who's obsessively consuming. And when I say obsessive, I mean, it could be unconscious, obsessively consuming, trying to fill a, a lack, and uh, to bring that word up again. Um, and, and then your description is quite accurate, that at each new consumption moment brings these fears of the, you know you have this pleasure you bought something new and then it just dissipates when the next and the next one must come and so in a sense well i've always been skeptical of meaning out of consumption in in the way that it's described within our literature base uh but certainly i think invert i don't know inverting is probably not the right term but moving that into a view of looking at dif disparate disconnected psychotic episodes of consumption might be more Accurate. Um, and I just want to problematize this idea of, of the anchor or the idea that anything can at all be anchored. Uh, from a dialectic perspective, we, we would always think of history as moving forward. And therefore, the dialectical relationship between subjects and objects is always going to be dynamic and ever-changing and, and moving forward. So to that end, it seems to me that, that there, there never really have been any anchors so would you want to say that there's something in consumer culture that, that accelerates, that there's a, a type of chaos that exists now, which is historically different to people who lived through hugely transformational times or where new technologies came and changed everything, that there's something in particular about consumer culture which takes us outside of that normal dialectical dynamic? Yeah, well, I, I would problematize. I would problematize your problematization in the sense of the idea of moving forward. I think is also quite indicative of this consumer culture because I wouldn't. I would say from various perspectives, um, we could certainly say we're we feel like we're moving, and we might feel like we're moving forward. You, know, we might feel growing old or becoming, or the years going up and up and up in terms of you know. 2020 compared to 1811 or something but I would I would say maybe we're moving I, I would problematize the idea of forward I think that also is indicative of this neoliberal sense of progress or, or this enlightened you know modern sense of progress which has led us to this historical moment the problem with consumer culture and I it's good that you picked up on this transformational time because I think to to keep us moving swiftly along as well, this idea of COVID is obviously a transformational moment, or not idea, rather, this material reality that we're living in. I think the, the issue with consumer culture is, is that it's trying to accelerate, and using that term, which is indicative also of moving, it's trying to accelerate 
everything in order to be able to exploit every tiny aspect of our life for the purposes of gaining capital. That's where I have an issue with the dominance of consumer culture. And with COVID, you can see that dominance. Well, it, it depends because I was um, at my local organic grocery store around the corner from my house and one of the um, clerks was telling me that it's their most profitable month ever. Uh, and so capital is obviously finding its way in certain aspects of life, but in other aspects of life, like going to the spectacle that is the shopping mall, um, it's completely come to a halt. I think there is something uniquely terrifying about consumer culture and its dominance in our symbolic uh, wor world. And when I, when I say anchor, it's quite interesting because the idea of grounding comes to mind, which also brings up issues around COVID, and the idea of feeling w oneness with your own body as antithetical to psych a psychotic state. And so this idea of grounding and anchoring, I don't have such a problem with that. The question is, do we view anchors and grounding and bodies as solid, as not changing and as stable. I wouldn't. I wouldn't view them as that. Nothing is, everything is, a, is you know, energy and matter that's moving and changing all the time. So I think there would be a problem, and maybe that comes from the neurotic state, where things are considered too stable and too anchored. But this complete loss of, of anchors is, is, for me, and the exploitation of that through consumer culture is, for me, the problem. I'm taking Aliyev of um, J.G. Ballard novels of dystopian moments, perhaps moments a little bit like this one, where there's always the central character is usually, if not always, some sort of psychopath who's having the time of his life. and it, It's always a he, of course, in these novels. Um, but is there something in this that has reality, as what you might want to refer to as, as, as that what anchors us, as that suddenly gives way in these dystopic moments that the person who will really thrive in it, who knows how to function when reality becomes unmoored, uh, is the psychopath. Well, I want to offer some reflections on COVID. I've been thinking a lot about this situation in relation to the psychopath. I can't, I'll, uh, the answer to your question, the immediate answer to your question is yes and no, of course. Um, but uh, let me talk Let me um, talk through a couple of points I thought about regarding COVID, and then I'll sort of circle back and answer your question. So in terms of COVID, I read, and I'll confess this, to this not being my original idea, I won't take the credit for it, there's a website, Lacan Online or something like that, and someone at the very beginning of this wrote how COVID is the the eruption of the real. So COVID is the, so essentially the real never leaves us. And according, I can't remember the name of the psychoanalyst from whom I read this, but according to one psychoanalyst, the point of psychoanalysis in itself is to address issues that the subject is having with aspects of their quote unquote real and to reintegrate that into their subjectivity. So, but the project would never be finished because the real there's always that leftover, I forget the word that um, Lacan necessarily uses, but there's always that um, leftover aspect, that feeling of real. And COVID, in a sense, is the real. And I would argue that if it is properly attended to, it could, in a way, shake us out of a cultural psychosis. 
of course, I've argued that psychosis is the, is an experience of the real, but it's almost a double entanglement whereby actually experiencing the real, which is COVID, which is the idea that life is completely precarious, nothing is stable in our lives, uh, anything can happen at any sense. This illusion of consumer culture as the life that we're living in is completely it's a false, it's a delusion. So that brings us back to an aspect of psychosis. And actually this real coming in could actually take someone who was living in this psychotic state and, and work toward grounding them. So it's grounded us. It's kept us in our homes. It's forced us to confront, you know, or to live with family members and, or to live on our own or whatever the situation might be. Um, it's, it's also exposing us to the real of death the reality of death, which has been in, in Anthony Giddens' terms, sequestered away from our experiences. So it's really interesting. And I think it could also, in one sense, it could actually end the idea of a psychotic subject if we say, oh, this is reality, and we therefore must reground ourselves, rediscover our bodies. People are exercising more, people are getting more into quote unquote Zoom yoga, which is a disembodied experience in itself. But um, having the time and the space to be in their bodies for other people obviously especially frontline workers there's a constant risk of death that they're facing there is there could be delusional thinking around do I have a sore throat do I have a cough or am I just imagining it so there's also this idea of becoming more psychotic that we're working with so it's it's, it's I think that um that's quite interesting. And then the third thought that I had around it was whether or not we could see COVID as exposing the limits of capitalism and also exposing our delusion of endless stuff. And this you can see in hoarding behavior, this you can see in stockpiling and fears that we actually could or might run out of stuff. So those, I hope I haven't gone over that too quickly. And obviously, um, let me know what questions you have around it. But those are my thoughts around COVID and, and this state we're finding ourselves in now of, of cultural psychosis. This has been a wonderful talk. Thank you, Alia, for joining yes, us. Yes, thank you. Oh, thanks for having me.